All right. Well, hey guys, welcome. This is uh, really great that that uh, there's a couple, you know, a hundred of you or so that would come, and others are coming uh, on a lunch day during Resurrection Week to hear a professor of leadership and evangelism from Wheaton University who's an expert. Uh, on C.S. Lewis chat, and you're like, what in the world? And so I'm going to get down quick because I want you to hear from my friend Jerry as fast as I can, but I wanna, uh, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to set him up because it's a good question to have answered, and then uh, we'll let him go, and then hopefully there'll be some time for you to get your particular maybe uh, question scratched, obviously not all of us, but a few of them that will, that will bless all of you. But um, what I really love about my friend Jerry, who I've learned from from a distance for a while, is uh, his ability to uh, just communicate as um, a person who really deeply loves Jesus. And this is a guy who teaches on leadership and the love of those that are far from God. And, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote, you may know, 73 different books, 12 different genres, okay? And uh, there's a lot to learn there, but why would you give your life to learning about C.S. Lewis in, in, in so many ways? Aren't you supposed to give your life to learning about Christ and the Scripture? Why would you want to be a scholar on Lewis? I'm going to set him up that way because there's a great answer to it. I'm going to give away one little thing because he won't tell you. All right, this guy who has read all these books multiple times, who I really believe that there are, is a Mount Rushmore of C.S. Lewis experts, he's on it. And I'm not kidding you. Uh, without a doubt, he's on it. I mean, that's what the C.S. Institute people around the world believe. And, um, but Jerry doesn't just read Lewis, all right? And, and I'm going to get the number exactly right. How many times have you read God's word, through God's word, Genesis to Revelation? Yeah, so 46 front to back, 36 more times, just the New Testament. And then I know one time, in addition to that, it was just working his way word by word through the Greek. So what I'm telling you, okay, is this isn't just a guy who's read Chronicles of Narnia a few times or wrote a paper, Okay. <laughs> This is a guy who loves the word of God, and the reason he loves Lewis, well, I won't take his punchline, all right? Welcome, my friend, Jerry Root. We're glad you guys are here. I'm going to move the chair out of the way if I can. I, I have really loved being here today, and I'm actually very overwhelmed. God's at work in the world. I didn't even know you guys existed till I was asked to come down here several months ago. And I am overwhelmed by the work he's doing among you in this community and so on. And it, it doesn't surprise me. If we just had the news to look at, we would think God was um, inert. But when we go places, I keep seeing him at work in remarkable ways everywhere. And I, we had uh, Lauren Cunningham who started YWAM. He came to Wheaton a few years ago. He has preached in all 212 countries of the world. He said when he preached in a house church in Saudi Arabia, one of the highest Saudi officials told him, this is just one of 5,000 churches like this that I know of. And, and Cunningham said in his message to the students at Wheaton, God is winning. God is winning. And we just get our little slice of the pie and we don't get to see it. But I'm, I'm impressed as I see what he's doing here. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, I, I offer to you not much. I, I don't know in light of how big and complex this world is, any of us offer much. But what I offer to you, I offer like Andrew offered the five loaves and two fish. 
For the feeding of 5,000, it was virtually nothing, but your son did something with those loaves and fish, and everybody left satisfied. It's ludicrous to think that one person could stand in a room full of people and everybody would hear something that would be unique to his or her circumstances and, and valued because it touched their life. But if we offer to you these thoughts today, and we offer it in the hopes that your Holy Spirit would take it like your son took those loaves and fish, then we have hope. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would take what's offered and that each person would leave here having heard something that would be beneficial to him or her. And that's what I pray. And we ask it by faith and accept that you who are among us, you who know us, you who love us, would meet us at the place of our deepest needs. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor Todd asked me, how was it that I got interested in Lewis and why would I give up so many years studying him? Um, I, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and we were sort of poor and I, I, I didn't have any academic inclination. I think I read six books before I went to college, not counting comic books. <laughs> and I, you have to take it by faith, was an athlete back then and I wanted to play sports beyond high school. So I went to college to play sports. My only academic interest was eligibility. I didn't know how to spell it, but I, I probably don't know how to spell it now, but that was my driving academic interest. But the interest in Lewis, I would have to start off by saying, first off, that this seminar, if you came here because you're interested in Lewis, it's not gonna be about Lewis ultimately. Um, I always had a love of words, even though I wasn't academic. I gained my first love of words when I was in Mrs. Reinhardt's first grade class, and she was going through vocabulary cards so we could build up our vocabulary, and I fell in love with the first word in first grade, and it was the word swish. I still love that onomatopoeic word, and I loved it. My loyalties were given to it long before it was popularized by a good shot in basketball. I can see what people were wearing when I learned words like subtle, ambiguity, perplexed, and even the word ostentatious, which is a word too ostentatious for my vocabulary. <laughs> but there's one word I have in mind that I think will describe what I hope the outcome of today's time will be. I mentioned to you we were poor, and I would watch kids in elementary school go to the cafeteria and, and I always wondered, what was elementary school cafeteria like? It cost 31 cents, and for us, that was prohibitive. But one day, to my complete surprise, as I left the house in the morning, my mother gave me 31 cents, and I could eat in the cafeteria that day. But I couldn't have described it like this then, but these were my exact sentiments. Being unfamiliar with the sociological protocols of elementary school cafeteria life, would I go there and do something stupid and the other kids make fun of me? So I watched with intensity as the girl in front of me in line gave the woman at the register her 31 cents. I did just as she did. She got her fiberglass tray and put her knife, fork, and spoon on it. I did the same. And she moved that tray to that chrome roll bar counter. Remember that thing? And she came to the first item on the menu. It was string beans. I hate string beans. I don't think I liked them any better then. And I watched with the girl 
And she said, apparently not liking string beans either, I'll have a small portion of those, please. I'd never heard the word portion before, but watched. Cafeteria lady, do you remember her? She's kind of a heavy step woman. She had her white hair and a hairnet. She had a white outfit with a white apron with smudge marks on it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady who worked in every elementary school cafeteria in the world. She got a spoon with holes in it so the juices could go through, dug down in a deep pot, put three string beans in a little bowl and handed it to the girl. I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a small portion of those too, please. Now I've heard it, now I'm using it. She did the same for me. I went down the line and I put different things on my tray until I got to the end. And I saw at the end what I considered the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life. And I began to wonder if this word had other applications. So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. And she cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I've ever seen in my life. And I thought, that is a good word. And that's our purpose for being here. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I came here because I want a larger portion of him. I read Lewis because I want a larger portion of God. If Lewis helps me see God better, then I want him. And the moment he's a distraction or I make an idol out of him, I'm not interested anymore. In a very obscure Lewis book nobody ever reads called uh, The Personal Heresy, Lewis said that we should never make a spectacle of the author. We should use the author as spectacles and we should seek to see the world through that author's eyes. In some ways, engaging in a conversation with the author that the boundaries of our own perspective might widen. We do it in conversation with others. Why not do it, in a sense, in conversation with authors? And so in light of that, I'd like to take you to some of the big ideas in Lewis. And again, I've been reading him now for 47 years, teaching college and university courses on him for 37 years. And, and, and I've lectured on him in 68 or 67 universities in about 11 different countries worldwide. And I don't know why. I, I, I came to him, I'll give you his big ideas in a minute. I came to him because I became a Christian my freshman year in college. If you know the love of God in your life, and you know his forgiveness, and you know how meaningful that is to you, it seems to me you'd want everybody to know. And I wanted everybody to know. So I started sharing uh, about Jesus to people, and I had never once asked myself the question, if God's good and all-powerful, why does evil exist in the universe? I've since written a book on that topic, but the question never crossed my mind until I was witnessing. Some people don't like to share Jesus because of questions people might ask. I found, wow, the questions are interesting. It doesn't keep me from sharing Jesus. The more I share Jesus, the more questions might come I've never considered, and I get to see how Jesus might be relevant to those questions too. So I said to people, that's a good question. I'll go look. Matter of fact, you can make a second appointment with the person. I'll be back in a week. How about if we meet and I'll see what I can find out? We'll never get to the bottom of these questions, but you could come up with significant substantive answers, skeletal structures on which we could flesh this stuff out for the rest of our life. I saw Lewis's name crop up in the literature. That was interesting to me, but it wasn't until I talked to my older sister, Kathy, 
who at that time was teaching fifth grade and reading them The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one night over dinner, she told me the plot of that book. I said, come on, there's books like this? I went out and bought a set of the Narnian Chronicles. I don't read fast, but I read deliberately, and I usually remember most of what I read. And so I read through the Narnian books, and I thought, I want to find out about this guy. And I ended up reading his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. And he talked about the fact that he was haunted by deep longings in his heart and the quest to find the object of his deepest longing. I knew the longings. And Lewis was the first person to give me a vocabulary for that part of my soul. So I started reading everything I could voraciously. When I got ready to graduate from college, a man wisely said to me, you do not get an education in college. And I wondered, why was I paying all this tuition? And he said, no, all you do is lay a foundation for an education. And commencement, what we call graduation exercises in America, means that you will now commence to build that education on that foundation. Pick an author who will take you places and make that author your life study. I don't think it has to be an author. I think it could be a composer, an artist, a period of history, a country, but something that's going to keep you intellectually engaged the rest of your days that will open up, as Lewis does, more than wardrobe doors on this world. And hopefully, if you're integrating faith in the process, it will take your breath away, and you'll be constantly getting a larger portion of him. You don't do it at expense of your study of God's word, but I've met people before that have said to me, I don't need other books, I have the Bible. If it's a hardworking farmer in the Midwest who, by virtue of working by the sweat of his brow, has no other time for other books, I, I applaud that. He's picked the right book. But most people, when they say, I don't need other books, I've got the Bible, they're usually a bit arrogant. And, and I think that this Bible is not, the Bible they're reading is not the one I'm reading. Because the one I'm reading opens me up to a wider world that doesn't shut me down. C.S. Lewis said, the worst of bad men are religious bad men. The quicker I might be willing to die for my faith, maybe the quicker I'd be willing to kill for my faith. Or paint a thus saith the Lord across my own opinions. And it's not long before I'm using the Bible like a ventriloquist uses his dummy. I'm mediating my thoughts through it. And by the way, thus saith the Lord. Therefore, if you're arguing with me, you're not arguing with me. You're arguing with God. It's borderline blasphemy. I don't think the people realize they're doing that. I want to come to the scriptures with a heart open, not a heart closed. I want to come in community so I can gain the benefit of the insights others see that I haven't seen yet. And Lewis is helpful to that degree. He writes those things in a book called Reflections on the Psalms, if you want to pick it up on your own. So anyway, I made Lewis my, my, my choice of authors, and I go to seminary, and I was a PE major in college, so this seminary thing is a whole new world for me. <laughs> We had to do Greek and Hebrew and theology, and I think the longest paper I wrote as a PE major was five pages in crayon, and now this is, a, this is a new life for me, and I have to write a thesis. There was no way I was going to write the thesis on the use of the optative mood in the Greek uh, 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 book of Philemon. That was not going to hold me. I wrote my thesis on Lewis and found out, wow, I can use my pen to write about things I'm discovering in his writings. And then that opened up doors, and lots of books later, lots of articles later, I began to see that people throughout the world were interested in my author. And I'm amazed at it, really. But I'm a kid who, when, when he was in third grade, got his first D. My parents weren't surprised. I don't think they even expected me to do that well. 
And I was put in junior high in what they called in those days the retarded classes. They were for the developmentally disabled. My friends would make fun of me when I came, came out. I, I, I don't think I'm retarded. But, but I, I, I probably didn't have an academic work ethic. I don't know why it happened. And I don't, I, I'm not saddened by it. I think sometimes we have these lines that are given to us. Maybe you suffer a little of abuse. Don't, don't develop that as your identity. But don't turn your back on that either. That might be something that God gave you to create in you a greater dependence on Jesus. Maybe a wider range of empathy towards the people you might meet, that you might mediate grace to them. These are just lines assigned to us. And we accept those. Well, anyway... I started really getting interested in Lewis. And in all my years of reading him, I've discovered some of these big ideas that reverberate throughout his work. Uh, The first one is a call to attend to reality, the real world that exists around us. Lewis was an objectivist. That means he believed there was an objective world that existed independent of our thoughts about it. And we are knowers. We are subjects who can encounter that real world. And we have, as fallen and broken people, a tendency to develop scoliosis in our rational life, our moral life, even our emotional life. And we get to adjust the scoliosis of our soul by grace to the plumb line of that real world. Don't confuse this with enlightenment rationalism. Lewis was not an enlightenment rationalist. He was an objectivist, and his tradition goes back to the ancient Greeks, It goes back to throughout the Middle Ages and the scholastic philosophers and so on. And Lewis had a view of truth that he writes about in a book called The Abolition of Man, one of his best books, I think. Mortimer Adler included it in the Great Books of the Western World in the 1968 edition. And in this book, basically, Lewis defines truth as, as in a very traditional way, um, if, if I could basically summarize the the, uh, description this way. A statement is true when it says what is, is. Or what is not, is not. And a statement is false when it says what is, is not, or what is not, is. This is a pen. True. Why? Because I said what is, is. This is not an elephant. True. Because I said what is not, is not. This is not a pen. That's false because I said what is, is not. This is an elephant. That's false because I said what is not, is. Very simple. That whole definition I gave you only had two words that had more than one syllable. And there's a distinction between truth and opinion. Opinion is based on probability rather than certainty. It's subject to doubt. And reasonable people can differ on matters of opinion. If I don't at least have some degree of probability for my opinion, it doesn't rise to a high level of opinion, it's just prejudice. And a wise person is a person who can make the distinction between the sure word truth and opinion. Um, the truth that we know, we learn from Lewis, that we hold with humility. This is a pen, true. It's a sure word. I can have confidence in it. It's not a last word because it's a pen that has a weight. It has a length. It has a width. It has a molecular structure. If Aristotle was here, he would tell us it has a formal cause, a material cause, an efficient cause, and a final cause. We can talk about how it writes on paper, how it writes on cardboard, how it writes on paper smeared with butter, not very well. 
But these are all truths to this. We could talk about the history of the pin and how in the days of, of uh, Michelangelo, he was left-handed. And so consequently, if he wrote with a quill pen, he would smear the ink. So what he did was he wrote all his notes backwards. That's interesting. It's part of this. I'll never get to the bottom of it. And yet it's a pen. That's a sure word. And in, a, a tree doesn't have to give up its interior rings just because it adds more. But if it's not adding more, it's dead. Okay, so Lewis is encountering reality. He says to his students in a lecture he gave at Oxford University called uh, On the English Syllabus, he said to the English students, we have fulfilled our whole duty to you if we could help you see some given slice of reality. See a world different than your conception of it, than your projection on it. See it as it is and begin to adjust yourself accordingly. Well, when Lewis looked at that world, he looked at that world also infused with the very presence of God, infused with the purpose of God. Creation implies intention. God made us, and he had interests in us, and he had purposes for us. Lewis quotes Dante in one of his books, The Arthurian Torso, where Dante had said in the Demonarchia, Everybody knows about the Vita Nuova and the Divine Comedy. In between, he wrote two other books, the Demonarchia and the Convivo. In the Demonarchia, he said, function precedes essence. Function precedes essence. Before God ever made the sun, moon, and stars, the luminaries on day four of creation, he made light on day one. He created function before he created luminaries. That means when he created you, he already had in mind the purposes he wanted to assign to you. He gave you what you needed to do what he wanted you to do. We spend our lives looking at other people and saying, how come I don't look like that person? Or how come I'm not as smart as that person? Or as gifted as that person? And we miss out completely on the delight God took when he made us. Oscar Wilde, the Victorian playwright, said, be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. <laughs> and so consequently, again, I'm looking at that reality a reality infused with the presence of God. And I begin to have my heart informed with a sense of awe and wonder. Lewis never confronts us face to face. He's always coming alongside of us, coming alongside the reader and getting shoulder to shoulder and describing some bit of reality and describing it so well, it takes our breath away. And if we see it well, we're not becoming dependent upon Lewis we're becoming fascinated with the thing itself. When he moves away, we're still engaged. That's the right way to communicate. So in light of that, there's this one, this one um, passage in the last book he wrote before he died, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. It's from chapter 17, one paragraph. I'm gonna recite it for you in just a moment. Before I do, I'm gonna define a word for you. And I don't mean to in any way insult your intelligence when I define the word. I'm just defining it because I had no clue what this word meant when I first read this thing. And I'm defining it for you if you're here like I was then. It's the word coruscation. Coruscation. A coruscation is a sudden flash of brightness. I grew up, as I said, in Southern California. I had never seen a firefly in my life, except maybe electronic ones at Pirates of the Caribbean at Disneyland, until I moved to the Midwest. I am still in awe of fireflies. And we could talk about fireflies coruscating in the back garden on a humid summer evening. 
or looking in a storm cloud, dark storm cloud moving our way. We could talk about lightning coruscating in the clouds. Here's Lewis's comment, distinguishing gratitude from adoration or worship. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. But adoration asks, what must that being be like whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. I read that right at the time Voyager, the interplanetary probe, was speeding past Saturn, 1979 or 1980. That most mysterious planet in our solar system, the one with rings. I still have my Time Magazine and my National Geographic when those pictures were sent back to JPL in Pasadena. I wanted to see what it looked like up close and personal. You know what they discovered about Saturn at that time? Though no human eye had ever seen it, the outer ring of Saturn, they call it the F ring now, it's braided. It's braided. I'm going, oh my heavens, what must God be like that he chose to braid the outer ring of Saturn? Though no human eye had ever seen it. I have friends who are physicists. I live in an academic world. One of my best friends is a physicist. He used to teach at Oxford University, teaches at Wheaton now. I said, Robert, why is it braided? He said, Jerry, these are the things that keep us physicists up late at night. <laughs> I've read five different explanations. Each one's a negation of the others. One day the physicist will tell us. In the meantime, I say, what must God be like that he braided the outer ring of Saturn though no human eye had ever seen it? And I shared it with a fireman friend of mine. And he said, yeah, Jerry, we don't know if he didn't just braid it for the picture. I think of ships that park themselves over depths of the Pacific Ocean greater than the light of the sun can reach and they dangle cameras into those depths and take pictures of fish neon bright. Why do fish have those colors? Can't be to camouflage themselves from a predator. Can't be to attract a mate. As a matter of fact, how do fish at those depths and in that darkness get together? That itself is a mystery to me. But I think to myself, what must God be like though no human eye had ever seen them? He chose to paint fish neon bright in the bowels of the ocean. I grew up in Southern California. I always liked to see palm trees silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky or a mountain range silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. Now I live in the Midwest. A cornfield silhouetted against an auburn sunset sky. There's beauty there if you would willingly distill it out. We could have lived on a darkened planet and gotten word from on high. There would be one sunset. We could have lined every west coast of every continent and island on our globe and regaled our progeny with the glory of that event by writing of it in our journals and diaries. But what must God be like that he's made our earth a perpetual kaleidoscope of sunrises and sunsets? Wow, and you're sitting and looking at one with other people and your heart starts to break and grief settles as you see it dissolve before your eyes. Don't worry, he's so liberal with these things, he'll give you another one. But how often we forget because we are so familiar with the world. We need authors like Lewis to awaken us to the glory once again. One star twinkling in a night sky should be enough to awaken awe and wonder in the mind and heart of every right-thinking, right-feeling individual. But what must God be like that he's glittered the night sky with stars and moons and galaxies, shooting stars, comets, 
And I wish you could have been with me at Wheaton College's Northwoods campus up by Lake Superior. One night I was, I was teaching there and some students knocked on my door at midnight and said, Jerry, they're out, they're out. And I came out and I saw pulsating and coruscating in the night sky, the northern lights, reds and blues and greens and whites. We did the only thing that seemed appropriate. We stood on the ski dock from midnight until 2.30 in the morning, singing songs of praise to God. Justice means to render to a thing its due, to have seen that glory and have not have thanked God and praised him would have been unjust. What must God be like that he's made delicate things like butterflies, hummingbirds, flower petals, peacock feathers. There's one that'll keep you going for a while. <laughs> but Lewis is too good of a scholar and too honest of a human being to let us stop there. He forces us to ask the hard question. What must God be like that there are earthquakes in Haiti, tsunamis in Japan, AIDS babies born in Africa, or Ebola viruses breaking out? What must he be like that there are just too many school shootings in America? He writes in The Weight of Glory, if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent, for it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we discover what we do not yet know and need to know so desperately. I don't know about you, but every time I read through the Bible, I see something I never noticed before. Where was that last time I read through? I'm, I'm sure none of you have had that experience. But. <laughs> or sometimes I read through and I go, that's a troubling feature. I don't know what to do with that. I just put it in the pending tray like a scientist does. Well, the scientist is waiting for the experiment to mature and be ready for the next phase. Just put it in the pending tray. Next time through, maybe two times through, all of a sudden you say, oh, I think I see some things here. You pull it down and all of a sudden it makes sense to you and it never surprises you because this book is supposed to be from the omniscient. Never be surprised of those qualities that remind you of his omniscience and that we're just pea brains. We don't know very much. Widener Library at, Har at Harvard University has 19 million volumes under that one roof. Who's read them all? We're just pea brains and we're trying to understand. And, and so you don't have to be dissuaded or turned off to the scriptures. You hold it there. And when you start seeing these answers percolate to the surface, every read or two, something like that, it gives you greater confidence in the wonder of this book, not less. Okay, so reality, second big idea. It relates to that. Reality is iconoclastic. Reality is iconoclastic. What's an iconoclast? An iconoclast is a person who breaks idols. I have an image of God. I go then to hear a sermon, or maybe I go to a lecture, or maybe I pick up a book and encounter something from the perspective of an author who brings a fresh perspective, or have a late-night conversation with family members or friends. And some of the pieces of the puzzle come together, and my image of God is bigger. It's breathtaking. But if I hold on to that current image too tightly, it will compete against my having a growing understanding of God. And the image once helpful now becomes an idol. C.S. Lewis said, I want God, not my idea of God. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. 
I want my spouse, not my idea of my spouse. I want myself, not my idea of myself. And so Lewis writes in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, God is always kicking out the walls of temples we build for him because he wants to give us more of himself. I mentioned Lewis opens more than wardrobe doors. You read Lewis, and you read the authors he refers to, and you'll begin to see that some of the themes that come into the river of Lewis's thought are contributed by other rivers that have come into his thought, the authors he's read. And so you start reading some of the authors he refers to, and you see the same concept, reality's iconoclastic, percolating everywhere. You, you, you go to Baron von Hugel, who's a philosopher of religion, and Lewis was impressed by him and benefited from him. And Baron von Hugel, in his letters to his niece, Gwendolyn Green, writes, beware of the first clarity. Press on to the second clarity or the third clarity. You go to Robert Browning, the great poet, Lewis, has felt, Lewis felt his ring in the book. It's a 500-page poem. I, I got to read it. I don't just read Lewis. I read the books he refers to. I read it. It was a great, great poem. I love this book. But Robert Browning, that was one of Lewis's 10 favorite books. But Robert Browning wrote lots of poetry. And if you come to this one poem, Rabbi Ben Ezra, you'll find this reality is iconoclastic in there. You find it in the whole book, the ring in the book. But uh, write down the title, Rabbi Ben Ezra, if you're married or if you ever hope to be married, Rabbi Benezra, Robert Browning. And what you need to do is on your anniversary, do what I do. Every year on my anniversary, I break it out and I read this poem to my wife. It's the one that begins, grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. You go down about line 30 and Browning writes this, then welcome each rebuff that turns earth's smoothness rough. Welcome each rebuff that turns our smoothness rough. We think we've got it all figured out. Earth is nice and smooth. Everything is in its proper place. But the earth isn't smooth. It has geography. It has texture. It has peaks. It has valleys. Welcome the things that help you to see it the way that it is rather than the way you have to have it be. Matter of fact, welcome that thing that challenges you. Why do you have to have it be like that? What's stuck? What needs to be dislodged? Another one is Tennyson, the poet, and his poem, In Memoriam. It was the way he was working out his grief over a 15-year period when his best friend died. It's an 80-page poem, and it's a brilliant poem, and there's wonderful, wonderful verses in it. One of the verses, he says, our little systems, he's talking about theological systems, our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, are more than they. I love theology, but all theology is approximation. God's bigger than our best thoughts about him. And Walter Elwell, the theologian, said, what we need to do is get better and better approximations. That's okay. And if, and if I'm inclined to do that, my guess is it probably exhibits that I'm secure in the love of God, and I'm willing to prune places where the thoughts are not right in order that I might bear more fruit because of that. And then, and then we go to Augustine. Augustine said in the Confessions, the house of my soul is too small. Enlarge it, Lord, that you might enter. And then you go to the Bible. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has been accused of speaking against the temple. 
And he is giving his defense and the people have stones in their hands and they're ready to kill him. And what does he say? Reality is iconoclastic. He says, you think you've got God in that box up on the hill there? Don't you know that when God appeared to Abraham, it was in Mesopotamia, hundreds and hundreds of miles from where that box is. Oh yeah, and when Joseph went down to Egypt, he didn't go alone, God was with him. And when Moses was taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep in the Midian wilderness, God appeared to him in, in a thorn bush as a flame. And that was holy ground. And when David wanted to build the box, God said to David, David, I appreciate the sentiments, but frankly, how are you going to build a temple to contain me? Heaven is my throne. Earth is just my footstool. And Who's the most sensitive child to go from our world into Narnia? Hands down. Who is it? Lucy. She encounters Oslan, the Christ figure of that world, in, in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She goes back on her second trip, having fallen in love with Oslan. And don't you love the passages where it says she just wanted to bury her face in his mane? I want to do that. She sees him for the first time on that second encounter. And she exclaims, Aslan, you are bigger. He says, oh, no, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. Reality is iconoclastic. Well, there's a million other places we could go because there are a lot of big themes in Lewis. But I want to go on one more and then we'll open it up for Q&A. And this last theme I want to go on has to do with the love of God. But I'm going to go at it in a backhanded way. I don't always agree with Lewis. And if I don't agree with Lewis, I'm probably wrong. But that's okay. <laughs> Here is the area. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he thought pride was the great sin. Uh, Augustine, in his commentary on Psalm 19, says the same thing. He thinks pride is the great sin. When they write about pride in this way, they're not talking about taking pride in something your child does, putting that picture up on the refrigerator with the magnet, or, or talking about the pride you take in a job well done, or pride you take in, in a friend who did well, or a spouse, or something like this. They're talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself as pretense, makes itself look better than it really is. And, and, and a swollen estimation of self, whatever it might be. They don't talk about it. Um, uh, they, they, they talk about it as if it was the axiom sin around which all other sins constellate or the foundational sin or soil from which all other sins grow. Um, I'm, I'm confident things come from pride. Horrible things come from pride. But I don't think it's the great sin. So if Augustine and Lewis think it is, and I'm, I'm disagreeing with them again, I'm probably wrong, but bear with me and see if I can make a case. Had they said pride was the greatest sin as if pride like the pyramid of a, uh, the, the apex of a pyramid was the greatest point on that pyramid, I could sign on. But the apex of a pyramid has things beneath it that are far more substantive till you get to the base. What might be beneath pride if it is exhibits itself as being better than it really is. I don't, I don't know about you, but in times when I find myself being pretentious, if I really think about it, I'm probably afraid. Or there's a degree of insecurity. If you knew me like I am, truly, 
you might reject me. We live in a culture that sort of feeds this fear. Even our Christian subculture, if we marginalize a person who's struggling by saying out of fellowship, carnal, backslidden, though nobody says it explicitly implied in that is you better have it together in this community, and none of us do. So somebody says, how are you doing? I'm fine. I don't want to go there. It's not just in the Christian sub-community. It's in our whole, it's, it's, it's invasive in our world. Watch one night of the news. I don't care if you watch right or left. We, we don't report the news anymore. We interpret the news. We have talking heads who are sitting, whether they're right or left, telling us. And they talk as if they're above the fray. They can find the flaws in anyone. If they make a mistake, they can hardly ever admit it. And consequently, we have in our culture, you better have it together. And none of us does. And this fear continues to percolate in our heart and goes unaddressed. If, in fact, I'm right, fear precedes pride, what would be before that? And here the scriptures are explicit. 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love casts out fear. If perfect love casts out fear, the corollary would be imperfect love breeds anxiety. At some level, all of us are saddled with the burden of anxiety. We know it's true because we know we've never loved anybody perfectly. And probably, therefore, we've never been loved perfectly. And human love is great as far as it goes, but it was never given to be a replacement for the one love that will leave you utterly secure, which is God's love. And I would suggest to you at the base of the pyramid is either the neglect or rejection of God's love. That's the great sin. Satan comes to Eve in the garden and says, yeah, this is a nice place where God's put you. Why did he hold back on you? Why can't you have that bush? It's a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. Desirable to make one wise. It's good for food. If you don't take care of yourself, he's not going to take care of you. Fundamentally, he tries to get her to doubt God's love. And then she asserts her disobedience as an act of her will against God pride. The reverse is true in the... In the uh, um, upper room discourse, where Jesus four times says, if you love me, obey me. Obedience is predicated on love. If this is true, and I'm going to get to Lewis in a second, then let me see if I can illustrate it with a story. Lewis was great on using stories we can learn from his model. He writes an experiment in criticism that when you read a book, you want to be a receiver of that book, not a user of it. Let it wash over you. I think we could say the same thing when we listen to music, before we make critical analysis of the music. Let it wash over us. When we watch a movie, let it wash over us so we could get our message right before we begin then to do some sort of literary critical or, 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 or cinematography criticism, okay? Cinematic criticism. I'm on an airplane several years ago, and I watch a movie. I'm a high T on the Myers-Briggs. I live in my head. I like to engage in the criticism. I'm listening to Lewis. Let it wash over you first. And I see this movie, and at the end of the movie, there's a scene, and I just burst into tears on the airplane. Now I want to go back after I've seen the movie and say, what was it about that scene? And the movie was The Notebook. Usually when I say that, how many of you have seen it? Usually when I say that movie to somebody, everybody laughs because it's a chick flick, and I'm not supposed to be watching movies like that. But I want you to know I'm secure enough in my manhood, it's okay. 
But if you'll remember, how many of you have not seen it? So it's about two-thirds have seen it, one-third haven't. Well, let me rehearse it to you. It begins with this old man going to a rest home, played by James Garner. And he starts to read a story to an old woman, Gina Rowland. And it's a story that then flashes back, and we find out it's a love story. And it's about this young, young boy and young girl in this town. Now, when he starts to read it, the woman's standoffish and an orderly says, it's okay, he comes and reads stories every day. The impression made is that this nice old man in his retirement goes and reads stories in the dementia ward. But the flashback is about a young boy who lives in this village. It's a village near uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And there's a woman who comes uh, with her parents to vacation in that village for the summer. So obviously, they're of wealth. They could afford to do this. The boy is of very modest means. She's of wealth. There's so many things that compete against any relationship ever developing between these two. Um, He has gone to high school and has a high school diploma. He likes reading. He likes particularly the poetry of Walt Whitman. But she has an education in all the best schools her parents' money could afford. Her family's intact. Very pretentious family. It's intact. Mother, father, daughter. His family, we don't know what happened to the mother. Did she die? Did she abandon the family? His family's broken. And with so many things competing against this relationship happening, somehow in that summer, in that town, these two fall in love. The parents of the girl are concerned. They've got bigger plans for her than to have her love somebody from this small, no-count village. And so while they're pulling her away at the end of the summer, knowing this is going to only be a summer romance as far as they're concerned, the boy yells out to her, I'll write to you every day. The mother hears it, and every day she's at the mailbox before the daughter could get there and intercepts the mail, and the girl gets none of it. She said, he said he would write to me every day. I never hear from him. He writes dutifully every day and never hears back from her. And at that moment, World War II breaks out, and now the circumstances of that war and the geography of that war pulls them further apart. It's at that movie, moment in the movie, the director tips his hand, and we find out that it's this old man and this old lady's story. And he goes every day to the rest home to read to his wife who has slipped into dementia the story of his great love for her. Towards the end of the movie, the scene that just broke me up. They're having a meal. He's been reading the story all day. It's a nice meal. There's a white tablecloth on this uh, table in the hospital. There is a candle burning. There's a rose and a bud vase. There's a record player playing all the music that had informed them of their relationship. And the entire environment is pulsating out to this woman, the love of this man for her. He finishes the story. And she looks at him and says, that's the most beautiful love story I have ever heard. And it sounds so familiar. And in that moment, cognition washes across her face. And she looks and says, it's our story, isn't it? He says, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was five minutes. She says, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask, isn't it? He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She says, tell them I love them. He says, I will. And as the music plays, she says, hold me. 
Can we dance? And they begin to dance across that hospital floor. And as quickly as she's come into cognition, she falls out of cognition, finds herself in the arms of a stranger, and begins screaming. The orderlies have to come in and sedate her. And James Garner's character is leaning against the wall, biting his knuckle, weeping. And I lost it. What was it about that story? And I realized, you know what, people? This is all of our story. This is all of our story. We're part of an impossible love story with so many things to count against it, yet somehow it works. And there are those moments when we break out of our dementia and we realize how deeply we are loved by God. And it's so sweet. And then some inconvenience occurs. Some misunderstanding erupts. And we fall immediately into that dementia. And when I saw James Garner's character biting his knuckle, I thought to myself, that is a window into the very heart of God. And it blew my mind. Now, Lewis is aware of this. I disagree with him on the pride thing. I think rejection of this kind of love is the greatest sin. But Lewis says every mature Christian would agree that a man or a woman's spiritual health is in direct proportion to his or her love for God. Everything that Lewis wrote after he was a Christian, he said, all my books are evangelistic. He was calling people back to enter into a larger portion of God, to, to come at things from a different angle. Let's situate it in Narnia, and we'll, we'll represent Jesus by this lion. Let's do it extraterrestrially. Let's take people to Mars, Malkandra, Paralandra, Venus. Let's let them look afresh at Tholkandra, Earth, and see our brokenness and fallenness and what the world looks like when Christ isn't in the middle of it. Uh, let's let's um, write an autobiography. What was his autobiography? Surprised by Joy. What does he say he was writing? How he moved from atheism to Christianity. He was writing testimonial apologetics. His apologetics also were to help people unravel all of their defenses against God that they might have opportunity for the word of God to break through. He said reason sometimes stands corrupted as it is like dragon sentries before our heart. And sometimes a story can get past the watchful dragon, melt the heart and help us to see afresh. Why do I say all this? The end of his life, Lewis was on his deathbed in Headington, Oxford. He received a letter from a little girl in America. She was 11 years old. Her name was Ruth. He gets this letter about three and a half weeks before he dies. One of the last things he ever wrote with his pen was his response to this girl. Lewis on the threshold of eternity, a young American girl on the threshold of her earthly life. And what did he write to her? I pray that you will continue to love Jesus. And if you do, nothing very bad will ever happen to you. That loving Jesus, basically, he said, was the most important thing. That, that's kind of why I'm engaged in studying Lewis. Any questions? <laughs> I think there's a micro. Yeah, you guys say it loud. My ears are really bad. I have, I have an irreversible disease in my ears. It's called getting older. Uh, 
Well, I mean, it, you could nuance it several ways. C.S. Lewis talked about the great dance in a couple of his books. Can I elaborate on that? I mean, I think you could probably go lots of ways with this, right? A, a, a kernel of some truth or idea, uh, its roots may go down to a deeper soil and its leaves turned out to more ambient air. But, but basically, the great dance is that God, the creator, is wooing us to himself and he's inviting us to enter into engagement with him. And, and sometimes we may have a misstep, right? But he's not ready to abandon us as his partner. You know, he loves us. And I think it's that sort of thing. And it's a dance, too, that has to do not only with, with, with uh, uh, our movement in life, but our thinking, our feeling, our choosing in life as well. Is that sufficient for you? Or maybe I'm not scratching where you're itching. What was your first name? Daniel. So your name means God is my judge. Isn't it a great name? Yeah, I love that name. Uh, we got another one over here. Ah, Hi Nutter. There. This was yes. one of my favorite students I ever had at Wheaton College. Stop. <laughs> Kristen um, Nutter. It's good to see you. So I know that you've studied a lot about specifically imagination. Can you tell us some of the things you've learned regarding imagination in C.S. Lewis and how it affected you? Yeah, yeah. I came out with a book a couple years ago on C.S. Lewis. It's called... Uh, um, the Surprising Imagination of C.S. Lewis. In all my years of reading Lewis, I found about 31 different ways he uses the word imagination. You know, they say that the indigenous peoples in the north, we used to call them Eskimos, but the indigenous peoples in the north have 30 different words for snow, supposedly. Well, that, you know, there's a lot of different native dialects in the north, so how do, we, how do you come up with that? I don't know. But it's because they live in the snow, they nuance it better. You know, you've got, you've got uh, fresh snow, powdery snow, icy snow. Uh, uh, you've got all kinds of snow. And, and Lewis has these 31 words for imagination because he lives in the world of the imagination. Lewis is aware that there's no development of thought apart from some sort of imaginative exercise. Even the scientists tell us that. Because the scientist begins the scientific method with a hypothesis, which is an imaginative depiction. It might be like this. Then we study and test. Then if we come up with a conclusion, the scientist depicts this with a model. The model is not a thing itself, but at least it allows those who want to discover what the scientist has discovered to move into that realm imaginatively. All development of thought will have some imaginative use. So Lewis recognizes, too, as fallen people, there's some bad uses of the imagination and some good. The first kind of imagination that we find in, in him is what he calls primary imagination or common sense. You have five gates of empirical data coming in. Sight, smell, sound, taste, touch. I, I've often wondered if in heaven maybe we'll get 20. Eagles can see farther than us. Dogs can hear better and smell better than us. What if our eyebrows will give us information and, and our, and our uh, earlobes ear will give us information? And they say crickets hear through their arms. Maybe our elbows will give us information. Who knows? But the bottom line is we got five gates. There's all kinds of distractions going on, but you're focusing your attention, maybe, Maybe you're thinking about what you're going to eat tonight. But you might be focusing your attention on what I'm saying. With all the gates going on, you have to bring that into what uh, Lewis, borrowing from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, called common sense, which is not itself 
an empirical activity. It's an exercise of the soul. It's a work of the imagination, and he calls that the first form of imagination. You can have what he takes from Wordsworth, the transforming imagination, and that would be like the psychologist's projection. This would be a bad use. When I project on a thing what I think it is. Let's say you have an encounter with somebody, and, and you don't like them. Somebody says, why don't you like them? You just met them. I don't know, bad chemistry, I guess. What do you fill in what you don't know with? Do you immediately go to the default of thinking the worst of that person? Or do you think, I don't know about this person, I need to find out? Or do you maybe even go to the default of trying to think the best of them? The transforming imagination is when you project on something that which is not really there. But you have to have it be there. You need a little Robert Browning to, you know, welcome each rebuff that turns her smoothness rough. So that would be a negative use. He has another one that he gets from Shakespeare and Dante. And he calls it the, the uh, penetrating imagination. He says Shakespeare can write one sonnet and use seven metaphors in that one sonnet. Like a hummingbird going all around the flowers on this bush, he gets all around it and brings for us a more robust understanding. Or Dante may use multiple similes in one descriptive uh, uh, section in the Divine Comedy. He has what he calls a realizing imagination. That's like the flower and bud that opens up in full flower. This he calls the medieval imagination, where their worlds were worlds of embellishment. They would take an old story and retell that story in, in, a, new, in a new raiment. We, we do it all the time in our movies, right? Um, uh, what was August Rush? Did you guys see August Rush? What's that the retelling of? Oliver Twist. Robin Williams is the Fagin character. How about Inception? It's a retelling of the Greek myth, Orpheus and Eurydice. He goes down into hell to get Eurydice and bring her back. Looks at her last minute, she disappears. How about uh, um, Bridget Jones' Diary? Retelling of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Matter of fact, Colin Firth, who played Darcy in the BBC film version, plays a character named Darcy. You know, it's like they're taking a two-by-four and hitting something. We're retelling you know, Pride and Prejudice, we want you to get this. <clears throat> You've got uh, Lion King, retelling of Hamlet. Uh, we could go on and on, West Side Story, retelling of Romeo and Juliet. You, you know all this stuff. So anyway, even Lewis does it, right? Great Divorce, retelling of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, but in a satirical way. Uh, uh, Till We Have Faces, retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche. Even Prince Caspian, retelling of uh, him. So that's the realizing imagination. It tell, retells an old story, but it puts it in new raiment for some purpose of the author. First name, sir? Will, thank you. Will, Dr. you're Rick. telling me it's time? No, not at oh. all. First of all, I'm saying thank you for your comments today. It's been very enjoyable for me and I'm sure for everybody else. My question is, how would you respond or reply to a comment that <clears throat> the ending of Lewis's last battle, the seventh book of Narnia, seems to, on its face, make some claim of universalism or faith by works uh, analysis. Uh, how would you respond or reply to that comment? Yeah. Do you remember what the guy's name was? Emeth. Emeth. Do you know what that means in Hebrew? I do not. Truth. Lewis writes about Emeth in two other books. So I'd probably take them to those other books to see what he says about Emeth and, 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 and build a sort of wider understanding of Lewis's concept. Lewis is not a universalist. Also, you would never judge an author's theology by their fiction. They may take liberties in their fiction they wouldn't otherwise. But in 
uh, Reflections on the Psalms, where Lewis writes the longest passage with any kind of propositional descriptors about Ameth. He talks about uh, Pharaoh Otnachan. Pharaoh Otnachan was a, uh, the father of Tutankhamun. He lived in polytheistic Egypt before the time of Christ. And Pharaoh Otnachan, he says, held to a kind of emeth, truth. And he was a monotheist in that polytheistic world. Lewis says he may have just been a crackpot going against the grain of his day, but we've got some things that Otnachan actually wrote that seems to show real devotion to the one God. So what was going on there? And Lewis said maybe he's responding to the light he had, and he hasn't gotten the completion of the fullness of the revelation. There's only one way you get into heaven, and that's by Christ. But what about people who lived before the day of Christ? Well, we know about that. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad in it. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he looks by faith forward to the promise as we look by faith backwards to the fulfillment of that promise. Could it be that Ameth, truth, responded to by a person in days before the time of Christ could have its own fulfillment where people will come to the place where they will encounter Christ eventually. And Lewis is open to this as a possibility. We have to be open to some sort of discussion about this because it says there will be people in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That means God's not left himself without witnesses, it says in the book of Acts. It very may, well may be when he was revealing himself to Abraham in Mesopotamia, he was revealing himself to a tribal person in Malawi. We know the Abraham story because it was through the Jews that God gave us the scriptures and that through the Jews, God gave us the Messiah. But it wasn't just through the Jews God was working. I found 28 people in the Old Testament who weren't Jews who believed in Yahweh. So he's still at work. I've met four Muslims or, or four Christians who were Muslims who came to faith. I've talked with them myself because Jesus showed up to them in visions. So Jesus even himself said, if, if these people are quiet on the day of Passover, uh, uh, of the, of the uh, um, what we celebrate last Sunday? <laughs> my wife says, my mind's like lightning, one flash, then total darkness. Uh, good, uh, uh, Palm Sunday, thank you. Jesus says, if these guys are quiet, the stones will cry out. I think, I think Lewis is doing speculation on the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, and what happens to a person who dies before they complete the process that's already begun in them. Somebody could say, well, couldn't God keep them alive till the process was complete? Yeah, that's possible, but what if? Why not do speculation on that? The, the one thing, though, is even if you were going to press his book, Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, stands at Narnia heaven. And as the lights go out in old Narnia, people come streaming up to the door and they look at Aslan and love him and enter because only through Christ do you enter. And Ameth had to enter that way. But as soon as they come up to Aslan, if they hate him, they go out into outer darkness, not looking like Lewis was a universalist. Again, we don't press fiction, an author's fiction, to figure out their theology, but even that wouldn't allow us to make the universalist judgment. Is that helpful a little bit? Yeah, yeah, we got one over here. First name? Jennifer. Say it again. Jennifer. Jennifer. Yes, and you said that every single one of his books was idealistic. I was he said that. Okay, I believe you. But, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually, most of the stuff in the grief observed, you'll find in the letters he wrote to Sheldon von Alken when von Alken's wife, Davy, died. These are not new ideas with Lewis. Some people think his faith just, you know, wilted away when all that happened. No, it didn't. He was like any man who lost his wife whom he loved. He's working through his grief. Okay, so in some senses then, a grief observed, I don't want to elevate it to the level of the Psalms, but say it's not unlike that. Have you ever had people say to you, oh, I just love the Psalms, they're so comforting? I go, I don't know if you're reading the same ones I'm reading. <laughs> I mean, I sometimes wonder if David wasn't bipolar, don't you ever wonder that? You know, how blessed are those who bash Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks, or Psalm 109, I read it in my quiet time this morning. Um, I pray, Lord, that all my enemies' children will be orphans. I don't think God wants us bashing Babylonian babies' heads against the rocks. I don't think uh, uh, God wants us to ha have our enemies' children be orphans. But aren't there times you feel like you want to shake somebody? Is your faith in irrelevancy at that moment? Or does God invite you into the template of a kind of prayer that allows you to be unpretentious and honest before him and press out the pus of the deep-seated sadness in your life? that it might be cleansed, cathartic things might occur, and you might process your bitterness and grief. Anne Lamott, you know, in her book, Traveling Mercy, says, bitterness is like you drinking the rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. I want to get rid of that stuff. So I think Lewis is just being excruciatingly honest as he goes through a process of grief. I appreciate that. My older brother, who took me uh, saved my life from a near drowning accident when I was a kid and then took me to the meeting the night I asked Jesus in my heart. He died at 48. I, I, I shed tears every day for two years. My sister who told me about Lewis, her husband Tad died when he was only 50. I had to do both those funerals and I, I called my sister every day for two years. These things take time to process and I think honesty about this, and Lewis, who at the end of the day, matter of fact, that's one of the places where he explicitly says, reality is iconoclastic. At the end of the day, through all that honesty, you find him embracing God. I mentioned this this morning earlier. Do you remember the last words of that book? They're in Italian. They come from, from Dante's Divine Comedy. And Dante had had this encounter with Beatrice Portinari, when he was a kid. He doesn't marry her, but she was for him the representative of first love. Some things were defined in his heart by that encounter, but what did she mean? It couldn't have been about Beatrice. And she ends up dying, but he writes many years after he wrote the Vita Nuova where he tells the first story of meeting her. He writes a divine comedy and he has Virgil, who represented for him the highest of literary art and beauty, lead him through the inferno, lead him halfway through the purgatorio. And Beatrice comes out of heaven and collects him. And she is his guide through the rest of the purgatorio on into the paradiso. Lots of adventures are going on in the whole story. But she leads him to the very threshold of the presence of God. And then he says, Dante, she turned to look but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. And Dante's basically saying, all these loves, human loves, as glorious as they could be, as heartbreaking as they sometimes might be, ultimately these loves 
are ways that God is wooing us ultimately to himself. In the last lines of A Grief Observed, in Italian, Lewis writes, she turned to look, but not at me. She turned to the eternal fountain. It's very evangelistic. And anything that, that, that cheapens any philosophy of life or approach to life that doesn't look at it so that all the texture of life can have some expression. Lewis said the authors that drove him before he became a Christian were authors like George MacDonald and authors like, particularly, he said, uh, George Herbert. They wrote of the roughness and density of life. They wrote of real life as we actually live it. And Lewis says it all points ultimately if we unravel it properly to God. Yeah, I think all of his books are evangelistic. They may, be, they may be more apologetic, but that's sort of pre-evangelistic or it's, 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 it's taking down the scaffolding of our false notions that have, have kept us in our blindness. Is that fair, Jennifer? Yes, sir. First name? The first name, Michael. Michael, you know what your name means? Let me hear. Huh? No, I don't. It means who is like God. Every time somebody calls your name, you should say, Nobody. Michael. I'll do that. Michael. Nobody. There you go. He's a quick learner. Go ahead, Michael. You've, uh, you've obviously, obviously had some great, a great mentor in C.S. Lewis, and, and it sounds like a bunch of other writers and poets and authors. Are there any, are there any people that, that have been alongside of you or mentors that you've experienced in your journey, right, that you've had a, a relationship with that, that have stuck out to you along your, along your way? Yeah. Yeah, many. Um, I remember Jerry Houston, who was the guy who was the director of the YMCA. He was one of the two most decorated men during World War II. And he took a bridge in Germany at the end of the war. And when he looked at the German soldiers they killed, he saw they were all 15 and 16-year-olds. And he said, this is nuts. And he went back to the YMCA and worked with kids all of his life. And, and he was a guy who, who said to me, I mattered. I, I appreciated that. There weren't churches that were very strong in where I lived, where I grew up. But Jerry at the YMCA had a big impact upon me. Robert Seeley, an insurance salesman who taught a Bible study for Whittier College students when I attended there, he marked my life deeply. Michael Pretorius, who was a philosophy teacher at Whittier College where I attended, who was the first academic who said, you know what? You, you've got a mind. You can write. You can think. I never believed that about myself, but he spoke encouragement to me. I'll never forget it. A professor, Richard Rigsby, when I was in seminary, I had finished everything, even my thesis, but I hadn't done my Hebrew. Greek is okay. It looks like English. Hebrew looks like somebody put ink on a chicken's feet and let them walk all over the page, <laughs> and they're going to read it. And I went to him three weeks into the course. I said, Dr. Rigsby, I got everything done. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to fail. He said to me, I will not let you fail. And I ended up doing well in Hebrew and came back and took courses even after I graduated. And the book of Job, for example, I used to be able to read it from the original. I can't do it now. My Hebrew is tohu avohu, which means without form and void. But anyway, <laughs> but that professor, uh, uh, Basil Mitchell, who was one of the most eminent philosophers of religion of his day, was my supervisor on my doctorate. And Basil Mitchell, uh, he, he helped me 
through a process. I learned to think. I learned to think sitting also every week for nine and a half years at, at, at the table, kitchen table, with a small group of guys, with Walter Elwell, one of the eminent evangelical theologians of his day, demeaned and belittled by other people. He had a photographic memory. I could tell you stories. But belittled and demeaned by many theologians because he spent time producing materials that would be useful for pastors to dig deeper rather than write original theological work. But his, his, the ripples of his life go wider than some of those theologians. And, and, and I learned so much from him, a, a tremendous mentor. And in their own way, my parents are goofy, you know, and, and that explains some things. <laughs> but in their own way, you know, I, they, they didn't have a great marriage. Um, mostly, I think it was my mom struggling with stuff from her past. But they stayed together, and somebody said to me, what do you want to see when you first get to heaven? You want to go meet C.S. Lewis? So the first thousand years, I'm going to be gawking at Jesus, frankly. But after that, no, I want to see my parents with light in their eyes for each other because the brokenness is fixed. I want to see my brother, you know, these sorts of things. But my brother, too, had a big influence on me. My sister. My, I have a rich life of people who made me feel like I mattered. When I was a child, I didn't have that so much. But again, those are lines assigned to us. And God had his purposes in that, and I embraced them. But I've been fortunate. And I, I want to say a couple other people. There was another guy, Lyle Dorsett, who was also one of the supervisors on my doctorate, a wonderful friend and a great person. And in the last draft of my thesis, I had two rhetoricians walk me through it. Steve Beebe from Texas State University at San Marcos. Wonderful, a man who exudes hope. And then Jeff Davis, who is a rhetorician at Wheaton College. And I owe, I owe great debts to them. And the best thing I can do is love on others who come in front of me, and that might be a way to play it forward. Is that fair, Michael? Michael? <laughs> and we got, I don't know how much time we have. I want to be conscious. I think we can take one more question. We got two hands up. You, I'll stay here afterwards as long as you want. Okay, go ahead. First name? Me? Oh, yeah. Right, all right, me? perfect. You're the it's good to chosen meet one. you, me. First, uh, first name's Lior. Lior. Yes. There's a story behind that name. Uh, there, are you asking me? Yeah. <laughs> oh. It's not a common name. Um, it's Israeli, and it means uh, my light in Hebrew. Wow. So. Wow. Um, oh, yeah, or. Olaf mm -hmm. Warish, light. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, so my question is, how do you... I loved what you said about not letting our ideas define God because he is infinitely bigger than our ideas. But how do you balance intellectual humility when thinking about God with being careful not to believe things that are untrue and dangerous about God? I'm not sure I quite understand the either or of that question. Maybe you could help me. So I guess there's, um, there might be some... God's I, bigger than our best thoughts about him. Yeah. So consequently, I look for the sure word mm -hmm. and hold it with the humility of knowing I don't have a last word. That keeps me intellectually curious. And there's a humility. I think humility is a synonym for honesty. Keeps me honest. Keeps me engaged because I want to go deeper and I want to apply to questions maybe I haven't asked but I know that there's much I don't understand. So are you asking if in that area of understanding, how do I know I won't come into misunderstanding 
or get off the rails. Well, I don't know that. I don't know what's out ahead. So what I have to do is stay inclined, cultivate in my thinking um, a, a, a fair understanding of reason. You know, they're, they're, they're get good definitions, learn to reason inferentially in a sound way. If I get off the rails, come back and start over again. Also to do it in community. I don't think we do well if we're reasoning in isolation. And so that helps also. But, but I think if you're going to say, I want to avoid all possible risks, you're in a worse position than the person who says, I'm going to engage, and where the risks are, I'm going to try to put in these correctives. And the other thing, too, is if Lewis writes about epistemology in several of his essays, in the discarded image especially, uh, his book on the medieval worldview, and he says that in, in, in history past, in epistemology, the study of knowledge, you get down to this, that you need a check and balance because we can all go off the rails. So the check and balance is authority, reason, and experience. If you go back to uh, uh, Plato, the Apology by Plato, Socrates' Apology of the Court of Athens, and you look through that dialogue, he uses those three to confirm his thoughts. If you go to uh, Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, those three things all come into play. Pretty much throughout history, people have recognized reason's not enough. I was sincere about geometry. I still did poorly. You know, reason doesn't guarantee. The fact that I have reason doesn't guarantee I'll use it always well. There are rules of the game of chess like there are rules of the game of reason. Knowing the rules doesn't guarantee I win every time I sit down at the table. But not knowing the rules makes reasoning impossible. The other thing, too, is experience. But there have been times I've seen magicians pull rabbits out of hats. I know in my, in my mind that that's probably not real. But nevertheless, I saw it. So I need to check on that. And then authority. Most of the stuff Lewis says that we, he says that we learn, we learn by authority. He says, I've never been to New York, but I believe it exists because people I know and trust have told me they've been there. But sometimes people can try and sell you stuff, portray themselves as an authority, and you find out they misled you. So the check and balance becomes important, authority, reason, experience. There's, there's lots of ways you can engage in the kinds of things that can protect you from the abuses and the excesses. But avoiding them is not the way to go. Learning the craft by engaging, learning from our mistakes, picking ourselves up, getting back in the game is probably the, the best way. Is that helpful at all, Lior? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. And I'll take your question afterwards, if that's okay. Well, hey, uh, as we... Yeah, this one. Hey, my name's Nathan. I'm on staff here, and I've had the privilege of just hanging out with uh, Jerry... I was going to say Dr. Root, but he won't let me do that. <laughs> and, uh, hey, I, I, as I was thinking, I, and I had breakfast with this morning and then staff prayer, and now I'm, I've just heard you again. And the thing I, I would love for us to walk out of here with is there's this Greek word in the New Testament, and it's, it's called potapos. And in, in its earliest uses in classical Greek, it literally is translated, what country is that from? That's the literal translation of it. It's like, what country is that from? And it shows up um, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Behold, and we translate it, how great, because what country is it from doesn't make sense to us. But it literally, if we're going to translate it the way the classic, the, uh, in, in the classical form, it would say, What country is the love of God from uh, that we should be called children of God? Mm -hmm. And that is what we are. 
Wow. Right. And and the thing that I love and appreciate about you is you this morning and today at lunch have have uh, through Lewis's works and your own study have cast a picture of um, the love of God for you. And I, I want you, as you walk out of here, I want you to be asking and, and seeking and wondering so that Dr. Root came alongside of us and now he's gone and you're still asking the question, how much does God love me? Wow. Right? Um, it's a really powerful thought. So I'm going to leave you with that. But also, um, let's please uh, put your hands together in uh, gratitude for Jerry. Thanks.